Sin and evil are alive and well in our world today. Just listen to the news. You'll know it's true. That's because sin is alive and well in the hearts of men and women in our world today. Sin is the problem. Death in this world is the result of sin, Romans 6.23 tells us. And sickness and pain are also the result of sin. The Apostle James, speaking to Christians in James chapter 4, says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So yes, sin brings trials, troubles, and tribulation, not just in the world around us, but to us as Christians, even among God's people. Which brings us to the nation Israel and our passage today, which is Isaiah 39, 1 through Isaiah 40, verse 11. As we come to Isaiah 39, a little background is needed. We have seen in the first, or I have seen, and you can read in the first 38 chapters of Isaiah, that Israel is by and large a sinful people in rebellion against God. In fact, the prophet Isaiah starts right away in chapter 1, verse 2, with this stinging indictment of Israel. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Did you get that? Dumb animals know who their master is. Dumb animals know where they're supposed to go. Israel does not. Israel does not follow him. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Do you get the picture? This goes on for like the next 38 chapters. Okay? God is not happy, to say the least, with his people, Israel. Matter of fact, if we just kept reading in chapter 1, you will find God comparing Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. You will find him telling them that the Lord abhors their empty sacrifices and their burnt offerings, that he can no longer endure the hypocrisy of their Sabbath observance and their festival observances. Isaiah even tells them that the Lord no longer hears their prayers. But as is common to Isaiah, there is a little shaft of light that comes shining down towards the end of this chapter. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So there is hope. There is hope for Israel. That brings us to chapter 39 and King Hezekiah. Here we have King Hezekiah of Judah. Judah is the southern 
kingdom of Israel. Um, After the death of Solomon, there was a civil war in Israel, and they divided north and south. So you had North Israel, which kind of retains the name of Israel, because it's composed of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom of Israel, South Israel, if you will, is two tribes, made up of two tribes, and the largest of those is the tribe of Judah. And Judah is the tribe from which King David came. Okay, we'll get to that in just a minute. But Judah, the, 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 the nation of Judah, the king now is Hezekiah. He is a relatively good king. Um, his father Ahaz was a terrible king. But he's been doing better. And a matter of fact, in chapter 38, right before the chapter we come to that, um, is the famous story of Hezekiah getting sick and pleading to God for mercy to restore him and give him 15 more years of life so that he can serve the Lord God and help Israel continue to grow in godliness. Well, there's a little bit of a problem, however. King Hezekiah entertains a group from Babylon. Keep in mind uh, that in that Moses had warned Israel in Deuteronomy 4 and other places that as long as they were obedient to God, he would let them live in the promised land. Well, by the time we get to Hezekiah, they've been disobedient for about 700 years now, all right? But God's been patient and he's he's waiting for them to to turn around and and to repent of their sin. Um, and Hezekiah has just been healed, and he pledged he was going to do better. And one of the other warnings that's in God's word is, is Israel's kings were not to make alliances with foreign nations. They were supposed to trust the Lord God himself to protect them and to defend them. So that brings us to chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan the son of Baladon, the king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. All right, a little international intrigue here for you. Babylon is an important country at this time. And they are under attack by the big bully superpower of the day, the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are also threatening Israel. They're threatening Judah. They're threatening King Hezekiah and his rule. And so the Babylonians have sent a envoy, a group of people, to talk to King Hezekiah about forming an alliance. They've sent him a letter and they've sent him presents. They're trying to butter him up. And he is impressed. He's impressed. All right. That brings us to verse 2. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Uh, What do you think of that plan? Let me show you everything I got to offer you guys. Just take a look at how great I am, how rich we are. Well, now Isaiah is going to talk. So we come to verse 3. 
Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They had come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, Why have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. How do you think this is going to go? Okay. God had responded to Hezekiah's prayer. He had healed him. Hezekiah had exhibited faith in the Lord God. And then Babylon comes to visit. Well, here's what Isaiah has to say. Actually, here's what the Lord has to say through Isaiah. Verse 6. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers has stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come to you, who who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You see, Hezekiah has decided to align himself with the power of men rather than trust in God. Hezekiah, who seemed to be on a good path, has deviated. And while Israel has been in sin for centuries now, This seems to be the last straw. God's patience seems to have run out. And now Israel, Judah in particular, is facing defeat, captivity, and exile in Babylon about 900 miles away. The temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed. The city itself will be leveled, will be put under siege, and the Babylonians will turn it into rubble. But that's not the only problem that they've got. Remember, Hezekiah is a descendant of King David. King David got a little promise back in 2 Samuel 7. We call it the Davidic Covenant. In the Davidic Covenant, God promised to David that one of his descendants would be sitting on the throne over Israel forevermore. Well, what's going to happen to King Hezekiah's sons? His descendants are going to be hauled off to Babylon and turned into what? Eunuchs. Well, there isn't any kids coming out of those guys, all right? It's a big problem. In other words, this is about the worst thing that could happen to Israel. Their capital city destroyed. Their center of worship destroyed. The lineage of the family that was to sit on the throne according to God's promise forever destroyed. It's a bad time. But this is a pivot point in the book of Isaiah. The end of 39 and the beginning of 40. Because now Isaiah has some more words from the Lord. Keep in mind... Your chapter divisions in your Bible aren't really there. 
They're artificially placed there so we can find our way around the scriptures. For instance, if you look at the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, the ancient scroll of Isaiah, there is no space between the end of 39 and the beginning of 40. It just flows directly. So what does 40 verse 1 say? 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In the midst of this tragic, horrible situation, in the midst of the tragic and horrible judgment upon sin in Israel... God says, comfort, comfort my people. And he's not talking about the kind of comfort that just pats you on the head and say, things are going to be okay. Okay? This is real comfort. This is true comfort. And he's going to take chapter 40 verse 1 through Isaiah 53 to show us what that comfort is. And how that comfort will work. And how it will be accomplished. Back to chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Notice, he still calls them my people. You would think after judging them, they would not be his people anymore. But no, they are my people, says your God. Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. That her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she is received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So what is the point of this dramatic contrast between chapter 39 and the beginning of chapter 40? The point is, when we have sinned against God, the Lord still provides comfort. He still provides deliverance. When things are at their worst, the Lord is still there. You saw this back in Exodus. The Lord gives the Ten Commandments. Okay, Exodus chapter 20. He gives the Ten Commandments. And what do the people all say? The people of Israel all say what? We're going to obey, Lord. We're going to do those things. But what do we know is really going to happen? What does God know is really going to happen? They're going to disobey. So what does the Lord provide? If you read Exodus 20 and following, what does the Lord provide immediately after that? Well, he provides instructions for the temple and the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices. He tells Israel how they can be restored to a relationship with him after they have broken his covenant, after they have broken his law. So here too, we have tragedy followed by God's words of hope and deliverance. Let's take a look now at Isaiah 40, verse 3 to 5. What we're going to see is three voices. I've titled this sermon, Three Voices of Comfort. Because in verse 3 and in verse 6 and verse 9, there's three anonymous voices that speak up. And they are going to start to tell the story of how God is going to restore his people. How God is going to execute judgment on his people. How God is going to execute punishment on his people. But at the same time, how is God going to save his people? How is he going to comfort his people? How is he going to deliver them? 
You see, these two things seem contradictory. Because God is holy. He must punish sin. So how can they be brought together, so to speak? How can they both happen and coexist at the same time? Well, let's look at chapter 40, verse 3, and see the first voice that comforts his people. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become plain, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the point of the first voice? The Lord is coming and He is going to come in glory. Now it's still 700 years until this will happen. Isaiah is preaching this message to Israel 700 years before the birth of Christ. But he's pointing them to that promise already. And he's saying, this is going to happen. This hope, this source of comfort is coming. As a matter of fact, those words might have seemed pretty familiar to you. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all attribute them to John the Baptist and his preaching. What's the purpose of making the road level, of making it smooth, of lowering the the mountains and, and raising the valleys? Well, it's to make the road easy to pass on. It's to make sure you understand that the coming of this one is certain. There's no obstacles in his way. God is going to make sure this happens. Then you've got to love verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it. And the mouth, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Where else have you seen the glory of the Lord in the Old Testament? I just referenced Exodus, didn't I? Talking about judgment, the Ten Commandments. Is the glory of the Lord found in Exodus anywhere? The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire led Israel out of Egypt, delivered them from slavery in Egypt, delivered them to freedom. Well, the glory of the Lord's coming again. The glory of the Lord in the Old Testament that stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness to remind the people that the presence of God was with them. Well, the presence of God is coming back. And Isaiah is comforting his people with this message. Even while they're in exile in Babylon, he will comfort them with this message. The last thing I want you to notice, who's the audience for this coming? Well, it's all flesh. Here's the first hint in this passage. It's all flesh. It's every human being. Flesh is just a synonym for human beings. All men and women, not just Israel, not just the Jews, but all flesh is going to see this happening. All right, let's move on to the second voice. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Isaiah 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. 
Um, many of your Bibles probably have this verse in the front of them. I know mine does. Isaiah 40, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I, Isaiah, said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord, when the Spirit of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah is a master of contrast. And here's one of his contrasts. He's contrasting all flesh with the word of God. And all flesh or all people, human beings, are fragile. They are temporary. They are the very embodiment of something that doesn't last. They're on this earth for a time and then they wilt and fade away. But the Word of God is permanent. The Word of God is enduring. Why would this be a comfort to the people of Israel when they're in exile in Babylon? Because it seems like all the promises God gave to them have been blown up and destroyed. But no, Isaiah says, God's going to keep his promises. His promises will not fade away. His promises will endure forever. Well, what promises is Isaiah talking about here? Why is it so important that the word of God endures There's many of them throughout the Old Testament. We're just going to focus on one from Isaiah chapter 9. Because guess what? Isaiah is not tearing up all the promises God has made. He's going to say, no, God's keeping them. So Isaiah chapter 9, follow along with me as I read. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. By the way, this is the child that was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The child that would be born of a virgin. Okay. We read these passages every Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, Isaiah is talking about the promises given to David. He's talking about the promises of the covenant given to David. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah is reminding them. Oftentimes the word of God, you know, we come every week and we hear the word of God preached. And most of the time, to be honest with you, I don't hear anything new. You know what I hear? The reinforcement and the repetition of the word of God and the truth of it. The apostle Peter in his first, in his first book, first Peter says, 
I'm in the ministry of reminder. That's my job. I'm reminding you of what God is saying. Isaiah here is reminding the people of Israel what God has said. You can count on it. The third voice of comfort starts in verse 9 of chapter 40. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Good news, that's the word for gospel. Go up on Mount Zion, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The third voice of comfort. This message of comfort is a message of good news. It is a message which is to be proclaimed from the mountaintops with a strong voice. It is a message that will emanate, that will come from Jerusalem and Judah and spread to the whole world. Kind of reminds you of Jesus' words in Acts 1-8, right? We're in Acts. and Just a few weeks ago, Pat was in chapter 1. And Jesus told his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's their mission. And Isaiah says right here, 700 years before that, this is how the good news is going to be proclaimed. That's is where it's coming from. And notice, who is this one that is coming? Why, it's God himself. This isn't some hero of Israel like Samson or like David or like even like Moses. No, this is God himself who will be coming as Israel's comfort, as Israel's Messiah, as Israel's Savior. In case you didn't get it, he says it multiple times. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God. And that includes the word Yahweh, the personal name of God in His covenant with Israel. This is who is coming. And three times the word behold is used. It means listen to this. Pay attention. This is important. Isaiah wants them focused on this fact. Notice also verses 10 and 11. I told you that Isaiah loves contrast and comparison. In 10 and 11, he draws contrast and comparison by referring to the Lord's arms. To the arms of this one who will come. Well, what's the difference between 
the Lord's arms in verse 10 and the Lord's arms in verse 11. In verse 10, the Lord's arms of those are of, of a conquering hero. It's similar language to that which was used of the mighty hand and outstretched arm that led Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus. That's the kind of arm this is. It's an arm of a conquering hero. While in verse 11, the Lord's arms are those of a gentle shepherd. One who is tender, who gathers and carries and leads the most vulnerable of people. He leads his lambs as a shepherd does. Now we know, because this side of the cross, we know, John 10 tells us Jesus is the good shepherd. And John 10 is the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, which tells us the good shepherd is coming as Israel's Messiah. This Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. This, this is the point of the voice of comfort number three. So let's summarize. What is Isaiah saying to us through these three voices of comfort? First, Isaiah says the Savior, the Messiah of Israel, is coming and he's coming in glory. Second, he tells us that despite the judgment of sin upon Israel, God is going to be faithful to his word and he's going to keep his promises. And then lastly, he tells us the good news is to be proclaimed to the whole world, beginning in Jerusalem. And then more specifically, the good news is that the Lord God himself is coming and his coming will have a twofold effect. First, he's coming to bring judgment upon those who oppose him. And second, he's coming for those who trust in him and he will bring gentle, caring leadership like a shepherd who gathers his sheep into his arms and cares for them. Now, sometimes it's just as important to notice what's not been said as to what has been said. What has not been said here? What have we not been told at this point? Well, we've been told what God is going to do. We have not yet been told how God is going to do it. How is God going to bring full justice and punishment upon Israel and we might as well extend it to us, to all sinners who have violated his law. And how at the same time is he going to bring grace and mercy and save them? How do those two fit together? See, Isaiah in the whole book so far hasn't told us this. As a matter of fact, if you look through the Old Testament, you can see pictures and shadows of it, but it's never been explicitly told. Stated another way, how can a holy God have a relationship with a sinful people? How can that happen? Well, now in Isaiah chapters 42 to 53, in four passages known as the servant songs of Isaiah, 
the prophet is going to progressively reveal how God will save his sinful people and restore them to himself. We will see the servant of God and we will hear that the curse of the law for sinners and we will see this servant take that curse upon himself and bear the penalty of sin for his people. The servant will also keep the requirements of the law for sinners. And in so doing, the servant will impute or credit his righteousness to them so that they can stand in the presence of a holy God, having been declared righteous. So let's watch how Isaiah progressively unveils this. The first servant song is in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Here we see the Lord's servant is a spirit-anointed individual who brings forth justice on the earth. So justice is important to God. And this justice will be brought about by the servant. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands refer to the nations, to the Gentiles. This justice that the servant is going to bring is going to be a righteousness to the entire earth. He will bring it. That's the first thing Isaiah wants us to know about this servant. The second servant song is Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. In chapter 49, we see the servant as the one who will make Israel a light for the nations. Israel, who had been given God's law, who had failed to keep God's law repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly over the centuries and the centuries and the centuries, now God is going to raise up this servant. This servant who is an Israelite, who is a Jew, who is fully man, and fully God, and he will keep God's law perfectly. He will be the Israelite who is a light to the nations, which is what Israel was always supposed to be. Israel was supposed to represent to the world what does a people ruled by God look like, and they failed miserably. Let's read the second servant song, Isaiah chapter 49. Let's pick it up in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Okay, job one for the servant is to bring Israel back to God. Back to the Lord to redeem Israel. But now we have verse 6 and we find out about job 2. 
verse 6. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is new. Now, God has hinted all the way through the Old Testament that Gentiles were part of His plan. Matter of fact, the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 was that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But quite honestly, as you read through the New Testament up to Isaiah's time, you can count on one hand the number of Gentile individuals that became believers in the one true God. You have Ruth. You have Rahab. You have Naaman. You have Jethro, Moses' brother, Moses' father-in-law. And you could also include the Ninevites that Jonah went off and visited. But that's it. There's no, there's no worldwide seeming plan for the Jews to reach out and evangelize the Gentiles. Matter of fact, the Gentiles are said to be unclean. But now God says of His servant, it's too little a job for you to just save Israel. You're going to bring salvation and comfort to the whole world, to all the nations, people of every tribe and tongue. This is a massive turning point in God's Word here in Isaiah 49. The third servant song is Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 10. In the third servant song, we see the Lord's servant rejected and humiliated and even abused. And even though he is suffering, he remains steadfast in his obedience and trust in the Lord God. Verse 6 of Isaiah 50. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Even though the suffering servant is abused, humiliated, Treated horribly. He continues to trust in God. He doesn't look at his circumstances and how bad they are, but rather he looks at God and trusts Him in the midst of his suffering. So Isaiah has now led us up to the climactic fourth servant song. Isaiah chapter 53. In this fourth and climactic servant song, Isaiah explains the nature of the servant's suffering. Why is the servant suffering? We're told in chapter 50 he's going to suffer, but why? 
Why is he suffering? Why is he suffering? And what is he suffering for? What does his suffering accomplish? Let's pick it up in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He suffers for us. He suffers for his people. Here we find real pardon for sin. We find it in the person of the suffering servant. Here is where substitution for sin is found. His suffering and death are for us, in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin, the penalty we deserve to pay, that Israel deserved to pay. Isaiah goes on in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. He himself was innocent. And now we can see that the message of all the Old Testament sacrifices, all the burnt offerings offered day after day in the temple in Jerusalem was that the shedding of blood was required for the payment of sin. This was drilled into the Israelites. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of animals sacrificed for their sin as sin offerings. And now here Isaiah is telling us about the sin offering. Here we have the servant of the Lord stricken for the sins of His people. In shedding His blood, He bears the curse of the law that we as sinners should have borne. Here we have real forgiveness of sin and real comfort and real salvation. But Isaiah is not done. Look at the first part of verse 10. Here he gives us the why this is happening. Why? Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. 
Isaiah puts it rather simply here. This was God's plan from the beginning. From before the foundation of the world. And if you were reading quickly, you might just blow right past this. Maybe you have. But hear it again. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Isaiah gives no explanation here. I think John 3.16 gives us a pretty good clue. Because he loves his people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's out of love. Can you explain and understand God's love for his sinful people? I certainly can't. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a magnificent mystery. It's a wonderful mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. But Isaiah's not done. He's got more to tell us. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. See, the righteousness of Christ is imputed and credited to us as sinners so that we will be accounted righteous. We're not really righteous. He doesn't make us righteous, but we are declared righteous before him. So that God looks at us and he sees Christ's righteousness, not our sin. Verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And here's a key phrase. And makes intercession for the transgressors. That last line of chapter 53 tells us what our Savior is doing now. What our comfort is doing now. He makes intercession for the transgressors. He is our advocate before the Father. Romans 8.34, 1 Timothy 2.5, Hebrews 7.25 all make it clear that right now, today, while we're sitting here, Isaiah's suffering servant, Jesus Christ, sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That's amazing. That's an incredible salvation. And I do mean incredible. You can't believe it. We would have, human beings would have never thought of this, of this way of bringing justice and punishment together with grace and mercy and salvation and comfort. Here in Isaiah 53, we see true comfort. The comfort Isaiah referred to in Isaiah 40, in chapter 40. When Isaiah wrote, comfort, comfort my people, He was aiming at Isaiah 53. He knew where he was going. He knew the comfort that the the Israelites needed to survive the Babylonian exile. And he knows the comfort that we need today 
to survive our sin and our trials and our troubles in this world, no matter how great or small they may be. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our suffering servant who is interceding for us with the Father even now. Let's pray. Father, as sinners that are saved by grace, we thank you for the comfort that is ours in Jesus Christ. For while he is our ultimate comfort, he is also our daily comfort. May your word accomplish your purpose in our hearts today and succeed in the thing for which you gave it. In light of all this, may we remember your life, death, and resurrection now in communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.